Welcome everybody to the first of this term seminar and the first of the online seminars. It's given us a good opportunity to invite some of the great and the good in, in the field of obesity. I should say few, if any, are greater than William Dietz, who has been described by Boyd Swinburne in Auckland, another one of the greats in, in uh, obesity studies, as the father of childhood obesity research. So we're deeply honored to have him here today. He's director of the Sumner mm. M. Redstone Global Center for Prevention and Wellness at the Millikan Institute School of Public Health at George Washington University. He's also the director of the Stop Obesity Alliance, a, a powerful body in the U.S., I should say, doing good work. And between 1997 and 2012, he was the director of the Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity and Obesity at the CDC. So it's a, it's a great honor to have you come and speak at the Unit for Biocultural Variation and Obesity, Bill, um, here at the University of Oxford. Bill is speaking to the title, The Syndemic of COVID-19, Obesity and Food Insecurity in the United States. What could be more topical? If anyone can guide us through this minefield, it's you, and the floor is yours, Bill. <laughs> well, thank you, Stanley. So I'm very pleased to uh, be here with you today. As uh, I, you know, if I'm the pronounced father of childhood obesity, I haven't been a very good parent um, because it's increasing worldwide, and I'll share that with you uh, today. Um, I changed the title slightly because I couldn't figure out a way to talk about um, the, the current syndemic of COVID-19, obesity and uh, undernutrition or, or food insecurity. So I thought I'd start with this overview of the global syndemic of obesity, undernutrition and climate change and how that's been affected by uh, COVID-19. Talking about syndemics to a department of anthropology is a bit like bringing coals to Newcastle because as you know, uh, the notion of the syndemic really began uh, with a medical anthropologist in Hartford, Connecticut, Merrill Singer, who used it to describe the relationship of HIV and uh, its associated um, complications. But as the, the advantage of thinking about these global syndemics, these interactions of pandemics, is that it leads us to the possibility of, of double and triple solutions uh, or double duty or, or triple duty solutions. And I must also acknowledge that I'm, I'm really grateful that uh, Boyd Swinburne and I were able to co-chair this Lancet Commission on the Global Syndemic of Obesity Under Nutrition and Climate Change. So the, uh, to begin, that I wanted to start with the global burden of obesity, diabetes, undernutrition, and then turn to its, its impact. So on the left-hand side of this uh, slide, you can see what's been happening to the prevalence of obesity, which is in red at the top, and the prevalence of overweight, which is right below it, compared to the prevalence of mild undernutrition in the lighter blue, and the, and the kind of purple is severe uh, malnutrition. And you can see that Obesity and overweight are increasing rapidly uh, across the, the globe, and undernutrition uh, and severe undernutrition are, are declining as well. Uh, the concern we have is that the uh, COVID-19 pandemic may reverse some of these trends, uh, particularly on the, on the lower side, and may also accentuate, ironically enough, the, the trends in obesity, and we'll come back to that later. But these are all uh, very significant health problems. So obesity affects 2 billion people worldwide, $2 trillion a year. Diabetes, almost as much in terms of uh, costs, but about 25% uh, of um, the prevalence of, of obesity. Um, stunting affects 155 million children uh, worldwide um, and 850 billion uh, or million people with chronic undernutrition. 
um, malnutrition in all its forms, which includes obesity, undernutrition, and uh, micronutrient insufficiency, um, accounts for about $3.5 trillion per year. And for the purposes of this talk and for the paper that we published, we pronounce climate change a pandemic. It, it's, a pan, it's like a, a chronic disease or acute disease epidemic in almost every respect, and deservedly um, can be called a, a pandemic. To remind you, the, this slide shows the, the changes in mean surface temperature um, from 1850 to 2000. And you can see it was pretty stable up until about uh, 1950 and has been, increasingly rap has been increasing uh, rapidly since then. And we're uh, rapidly approaching the point of no return. And, and there are two problems here. I'm gonna talk a lot about how to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, uh, which uh, contribute to this rise. But the problem is that this is like a bathtub that's already full of CO2. And unless we figure out ways to drain the, the bathtub, no matter how effective we are at, in, at reducing the contribution of greenhouse gases to this rise, uh, we're going to fail. Uh, it's also worth looking at uh, what kinds of problems or how the, the substantial contributions that various sectors make to this uh, temperature curve. And the United States is, is different than the rest of the world. So in the United States, about 10% of greenhouse gases come from the agricultural sector, about 30% from the uh, fossil fuel sector, which uh, most of which is, is transport. About 8% comes from food waste. Um, the 8% is also true worldwide, um, but the contributions of the fossil fuels and agricultural systems are reversed. So the agricultural systems globally account for about 25% of greenhouse gas emissions and transportation is, is considerably less. Now turning to uh, the global syndemic of obesity, undernutrition and climate change, I'm, I'm showing you here the cover of our publication and, and Lancet in February, 2019. And on the right, you can see this, uh, this interaction. Now, notice that the arrows connecting climate change to undernutrition are one way. I, I'm not sure how undernutrition can contribute to climate change, but climate change, as I'll show you, certainly contributes to undernutrition. Undernutrition interacts with, with obesity and obesity interacts with climate change, not only in terms of increased um, use of resources, but overproduction feeding overconsumption. So, Controlling consumption uh, and reducing obesity will have a noted impact on, on uh, climate change. And here are some of those interactions. Uh, we're now seeing obesity and stunting in the same children in the same population. And uh, as you'll see, I think this could be uh, aggravated by the effects of COVID-19, which could increase both obesity and stunning simultaneously in the same population. Overproduction and overconsumption of ultra-processed foods is another significant contributor, and we'll come back to that. Um, the, <clears throat> in, in some respects, we do a disservice, I do a disservice to this whole arena by focusing on climate change and the role of greenhouse gases, whereas there's a significant impact of, of some of these practices on the environment, and notably overproduction of food, particularly of, of commodity crops in, in the United States, is a major contributor to environmental degradation. Uh, so that, for example, corn production requires uh, fertilizers, pesticides, and uh, herbicides. Those uh, wash into the Mississippi River and responsible for the dead zone of the Gulf of Mexico, which now approximates the size of New Jersey. And that's not captured in, in when we think about climate change, but it certainly relates to 
um, ecological destruction and therefore um, reduce sustainability. We know that car use uh, contributes to inactivity. There are good studies here in the US, which is very car dependent. Uh, and in turn, the, the more time people spend in cars, the greater the likelihood uh, of obesity. And, be, and uh, obviously greenhouse gas emissions from the use of fossil fuels is uh, highly significant. Uh, one of the interesting observations is that in California, as people have moved to electric cars, the, the contribution of car use to climate change has flattened considerably and holds promise as we move to a more regional or uh, countrywide use of, of electric cars. One of the major agricultural sources, in fact, the major agricultural sources of greenhouse gas is cattle production because cattle generate methane. Methane is a very powerful uh, greenhouse gas and, <clears throat> and driven by meat consumption and meat consumption contributes to obesity, diabetes, colon cancer, and cardiovascular disease. And um, as I'll show you in the next slide, there are very significant impacts of greenhouse gases on agricultural production and the quality of crops. So as you can see here, green, increased greenhouse gases increase temperature uh, and affect the rainfall variability. And for example, a good example is the um, several recent hurricanes that we've had in the Gulf of Mexico uh, that have occurred because of the warming uh, of, of those waters. Uh, and those extreme weather events uh, are highly destructive in agricultural systems, both in the United States and globally. Overall, uh, increased temperature reduces crop yields. Uh, it also reduces the nutrient content of foods, which increases um, the price of foods. And those in turn lead to food insecurity and, uh, and undernutrition. And many of those same factors are now occurring as a result of COVID-19, and I'll come back to those. There's also an effect uh, of greenhouse gases on um, ocean temperatures, which rise as they have in the Gulf, the Gulf of Mexico and acidified. And, and there was an article today in the New York Times that showed um, the destruction of the Great Barrier Reef. 50% uh, of the corals are dying as a result of ocean acidification and, and temperature. But these in turn alter the fish catch and the nutrient content uh, of those fish. Uh, so here's uh, again the global syndemic. And the global syndemic is driven by these systems that are the most immediate drivers, I should say, are these systems. And uh, food and agriculture, as we've mentioned, transport, land use, and, and urban design, which foster car use. But, and, and it's too easy to think that, well, if we just solve these systems, we'll solve the, the, the syndemic obesity, undernutrition, and climate change. But um, behind these systems are these incredibly powerful policies and economics um, and uh, social norms, and, and in many cases, racism. Uh, and we'll come back to the, the effects of structural racism, which operate very visibly in the whole pandemic of COVID-19. But these power levers are significant and really need uh, to, to be reversed or, or challenged if we're really going to uh, address the, the, if we're really going to change the systems that are contributing to the global syndemic on, on the right. So here's just the, uh, a graphic on the contributions of urban design, land use, and transport systems to the global syndemic. So you can see in the upper um, boxes that transport uh, and urbanization reduce physical activity which contributes to obesity. And that reliance on car use increases greenhouse gas emissions, which contribute to climate change. The deep drivers of this uh, are things uh, like in the United States, 
structural racism, neighborhood design, which limits, for example, in DC, the access of the African-American population to the rest of the city. Wards seven and eight, which are across the Anacostia River in, in DC, are 95% um, African-American. It takes two to three metro changes to get to a hospital in uh, other parts of the district. Furthermore, the, those neighborhoods lack access to food. There are only three grocery stores for 160,000 people in those two wards, <clears throat> whereas in the rest of the city, there's, there are, are many more um, for a similar population. That same uh, structural racism limits access to jobs uh, and the distribution of employment. Car neighborhood design is often highly um, overcrowded, which contributes to the spread of disease and, and contributes to COVID-19. But one of the most important deep drivers is the, the cap on um, gas prices, uh, sustain, which sustains cheap fuel, which is again sustained by industry lobby and fossil fuel subsidies. And one of the, the great uh, contributors to climate change and, and, and greenhouse gases is loss of um, methane in, in these uncapped wells, which are uh, highly significant in the United States uh, and elsewhere. So how do we address that? Well, at, at its root, unless we address structural racism, the, the policies and practices that keep people where they are, um, uh, we're not gonna be able to connect jobs to people. Uh, we need to implement interconnected um, neighborhoods and mixed-use neighborhoods to redesign the infrastructure to support physical and public transport systems, and most of all, to reduce the subsidies for fossil fuel production and increase the gas tax. That's a challenge. Nonetheless, if we accomplish this, we increase physical activity, there's less sedentary time because people that use uh, public transport are more active than people who do not. Uh, people have to walk to the transport and uh, the metro here in DC and walk from there to their jobs so they get more physical activity. We'll address undernutrition through cheaper transport, better access to healthy food and employment, allowing people to buy better food. And, and overall, the impact on climate change will be to lower greenhouse gases for motorized transport. Similarly, this is the agricultural system and food processing system and the global syndemic. So <clears throat> in the center, beef production and dairy generate methane which in turn contribute to climate change. And in, on the right-hand side, beef production or beef consumption and dairy consumption contributes to obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and colon cancer. That in the center, there's also this ultra-processed foods, and I'll come back in some detail to this in a moment. But as the example I gave you uh, with corn production in the Midwest, environmental degradation is a significant consequence and one of the problems with uh, developing a sustainable food supply. The drivers in turn of these systems are cultural norms. I mean, beef has become a, an almost daily product of, of many families in the United States. And that subsidies which maintain beef production <clears throat> are, are what account for the very low price of, of uh, hamburgers, for example, at McDonald's, where there's a, like a, a two uh, item for $5 availability of, of, of Whoppers and, and whatnot, uh, which is just uh, an extraordinary value and, and therefore people um, buy these foods. Um, but, but what keeps these foods inexpensive and available are the uh, cultural norms and the, and the power that supports um, these low prices and through subsidies for commodity crops. So most of the commodity crops in the United States go for fork, for cattle forage. So there's not even, they're indirectly for food production. And for example, it takes 1,800 
gallons of water to um, produce one pound of beef. And, and that's a real drain on uh, water resources. And again, these things are sustained by political power. And I'll show you that in a, an example in, in just a minute. So what happens if we begin to reduce beef consumption uh, or we increase uh, the diet of plant-based plant foods? Well, one strategy is uh, to pay for the true cost of foods, which in, would include the environmental costs uh, of, uh, and the transport costs. <clears throat> if we redirect those subsidies towards fruit and vegetable production and thereby increase the, the availability and, and lower the cost of plant-based food, plant foods, we can displace beef uh, consumption. A communication campaign to increase demand for alternatives uh, is, and demand for alternatives is, is rising. I mean, for example, Beyond Beef uh, is going off the charts uh, as, a, as a surrogate or faux beef burger. And um, I, I can tell you that those uh, have the same taste as, as a hamburger. Um, and finally, the, uh, one of the important strategies is to uh, consider implementing sustainable food labels so that there's an additional consideration when an individual is buying food to think about the sustainability of that, of that, the production of that food. Um, another strategy is sustainable dietary guidelines and food standards. Now, sustainable dietary guidelines, uh, you are probably familiar with the fact that the United States um, has uh, a dietary guidelines um, for Americans that are released every five years. Uh, and in the 2015-2020 Dietary Guidelines uh, Advisory Committee report, they recommended that sustainability be considered as a criteria for food choice. That certainly got the attention and the ire of the beef and cattle production and the whole meat industry, which lobbied heavily the secretaries of uh, USDA, uh, who at that time was uh, Vilsack and uh, Cynthia Burwell, who was at HHS, to reverse the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee advice and who stated that there, that there was no, no place for the consideration of sustainability uh, as a consideration in, in a Dietary Guideline Advisory Committee. It had to be all about the food. And the current Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee was expressly told uh, that sustainability could not be a consideration in their deliberations. And as a result, in the 850-page report of the current Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, sustainability was mentioned four times, and three of those times were in uh, references uh, that were included. So uh, there's a, a very strong political lobby that supports the, um, the consumption of beef and, and any kind of effort to uh, label otherwise. Um, however, it is possible to implement procurement standards to change demand in our institutions. And, and as uh, before, adding externalities to the cost of ultra-processed foods will help produce healthier diets for obesity, diabetes, and cancer prevention, improving nutritional quality and food security, and lower greenhouse gases to shift uh, from uh, plant-based diets. Um, now, the challenge is how do we deal, how do we develop uh, the political will? It's not what to do, which we know what to do, but how to do it. So how do we build that political will? Um, and I think this is as apropos for COVID-19 as it is for the, the global syndemic of obesity, undernutrition, and climate change. We initially have to focus on what we can personally change and then begin to change our institution. And I've listed here small p policies, which are policies within institutions like procurement policies. Um, that and, and when I was at CDC, we were able to change the procurement policies at the, at the federal level 
uh, first at HHS and, and now and then beyond to reduce the um, product, to reduce the availability and consumption of sugary drinks and cafeterias uh, and uh, to look more for uh, plant-based foods and, and lower fried. In DC, our strategy is to link with other universities in, in the metro area, and there are a number, uh, to begin to engage students uh, in, in areas like around climate change, like the Sunrise uh, Movement, and to think about disinvestment of fossil fuels, which has happened in American University here in the district and just happened here at GW. Um, beginning to identify uh, common targets and mobilizing people around them is an essential strategy that would then connect with state advocates uh, and, and lobbying government. But, but it ha- that like any social movement, uh, that work has to begin uh, at the grassroots and uh, for us in our institutions and with our families. So turning now to the global syndemic of obesity, undernutrition, and COVID-19, there are uh, very good data which um, have now shown the, the impact of obesity on COVID-19 infections. There's a, a paper that, uh, whose reference uh, is included in the next slide that show from um, Barry Popkin and his colleagues at the University of North Carolina who did a systematic review of um, 75 studies which reported on the effects of obesity of, and the effects of COVID-19 on people with obesity. So the risks of infections increased by 46% uh, for people with obesity hospitalizations uh, double that of other people. 74% of people in the ICU from COVID-19 have obesity and um, about 48% higher rate of death for people with obesity. It's also important to recognize that that there's a a lot of crossover uh, between um, people with obesity and black, indigenous, and uh, people of color populations that but obesity alone, even when controlling for these other variables, uh, increases the, the risk of hospitalization and death. But it's also important to point out that uh, in people of color who also have an increased risk, some of which is associated with obesity and comorbidities, that when after people enter the hospital, um, and let's say uh, after people of color enter the hospital, the course and risk of their uh, adverse consequences is the same as it is in white people. So it's what happens before hospitalization that determines the course of hospitalization among people of color, uh, rather than, than uh, some adverse uh, effects that uh, occur during the hospitalization. The other thing to point out here is that obesity uh, had an inequitable impact uh, across the U.S. population and and globally as well. So it's higher in African-Americans, particularly African-American women, and it's higher in Hispanic populations. Um, And so there is an inequitable impact of COVID-19 on uh, obesity and obesity, uh, an an inequitable uh, impact of, of ethnicity on obesity. In turn, um, the, the lockdown associated with COVID-19 has increased inactivity, which also contributes to an increase in obesity. And as I'll show you, <coughs> excuse me, in the next slide, the, um, the, or the next couple of slides, that ultra-processed foods uh, are also increasingly relied upon during the lockdown because the, the foods that <coughs> are ultra-processed have a long shelf life. In addition, they're highly palatable, which is one of the problems, and are low cost. And although <clears throat> all we have is anecdotal data that the consumption of ultra-processed foods is increasing, that's another risk factor that's a consequence for an adverse outcome of COVID-19 infections. 
So here is the, the reference that I mentioned is here at the bottom in, in the current obesity reviews. <clears throat> but there are a variety of mechanisms by which um, uh, obesity contributes to the adverse course of, of COVID-19. One of those is physic, just a physical susceptibility. So there's a decreased chest excursion because of increased thoracic body fat. Uh, intra-abdominal fat reduces the diaphragmatic excursion, so the respiratory effort is, is harder. And particularly if a patient with obesity is lying prone, their, um, their lungs have to push down against that uh, body fat <clears throat> as opposed to when they're um, erect. Um, uh, so visceral adiposity is a significant factor. Um, in addition, uh, obesity is associated with the many comorbidities that, uh, that I'm sure you know about, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, um, hyperlipidemia, kidney and, and liver disease. Um, and there are so also some intrinsic factors. Uh, among the most important are those um, inflammatory mediators that are found in adipose tissue. I mean, we used to think that fat was a, a benign storage organ. But in fact, there are multiple uh, factors, multiple inflammatory factors that are released from uh, adipose tissue, like cytokines of uh, like TNF-alpha or C-reactive protein. And all of these things contribute to the clinical manifestations that I mentioned with respect to infections, hospitalizations, uh, and, uh, and death. There is uh, some literature now uh, showing that there's decreased uh, T-cell memory in, associated with obesity, which has implications for uh, how much vaccine may be required to generate uh, the same immune response that we see in, in people who do not have obesity. So turning now to ultra-processed foods, um, the, the one classification and the most popular is on the left. Uh, so that unprocessed foods consist of fruits and vegetables, milk, nuts, yogurt with no added sugar. And group two is mildly processed foods with additives like salt, sugar, oil, or group three, which uh, includes additives plus canning or, or freezing. Uh, and group four are the ultra-processed foods. Uh, these are foods made with industrial substances and little or no whole foods. Uh, such as sugary drinks or packaged soups or, or noodles. And um, there's now a, a pretty substantial literature showing an increase in the in BMI scores, mean BMI scores associated with the increases in per capita consumption of ultra-processed foods. Uh, this I'm showing you here, a study from 12 Latin American countries um, published by the Pan American Health Organization. And there's also similar data now from a number of, of European countries, uh, combined data. And there's a good study that was done some time ago here in the U.S. by Dari Mazafarian, who's now the, the chair of the nutrition department at Tufts, who looked at the um, effect of food consumption, specific foods, and weight gain over 12 to 20 years in two cycles of the nurse's health study and the health professional study. So the nurse's health is largely women, health professionals, mostly men. Uh, and you can see here at the top that these processed foods like potato chips or processed meats or sweets or desserts or, or refined grains, all were associated with increased weight gain uh, over this uh, 12 to 20 year period. Uh, whereas unprocessed foods like vegetables or nuts or whole grains or fruits were associated with a, a decrease uh, in weight over time. Um, and there, there's a good explanation for this um, because these ultra-processed foods uh, have very little volume, whereas these uh, uh, diets high in fruits and vegetables are low energy density and, and volume is what regulates uh, gastric satiety. 
In addition, a good source of low-fat protein is another regulator of satiety, but, but one of the ones what I, which I think has been emphasized but, but is still very much under-consumed is fiber. And fiber from whole fruits and vegetables and whole grains is also a significant regulator of satiety. And a recent um, beautiful study, randomized clinical trial of 20 adults, showed that people tended to gain weight on the ultra-processed food diet and lose weight on the unprocessed food diet. Now, this is a study of Kevin Hall's published last year, and you can see that these diets uh, were presented in random order, 10, 10 people on one diet for two weeks and then a crossover on the other diet for two weeks. And the, the diets were similar in calories uh, and the sugar, fat, fiber, and macronutrients, but the consumption was different. So on the ad libitum diet, people on the ultra-processed foods, uh, which is this blue line, consumed about 500 calories a day more than people on the unprocessed food diet. And weight change uh, followed accordingly. So weight, about a kilo was gained on the ultra-processed food diet, and about a kilo was lost on the unprocessed food diet. So again, I think this, um, this em emphasizes the importance of thinking about how to maintain or, or increase the unprocessed foods, uh, which are largely plant-based, as opposed to the processed foods, which are also high in fat, sodium, and uh, sugar. So coming back now to the global syndemic of obesity and undernutrition in the era of COVID-19, or the COVID-19 syndemic of obesity and undernutrition, the lockdown and the uh, loss of wages has meant that people have large groups within the population, largely the impoverished population, have limited resources with which to buy food and are going to spend it on ultra-processed foods, which are cheaper. So it's had, uh, the COVID lockdown has had a, a disparate effect on the, the whole issue of food insecurity. And um, that in turn increases susceptibility to COVID-19 uh, infections by virtue of, of impaired immune response um, from the lack of uh, a balanced diet of, with, with micronutrients. I should also have mentioned earlier that one of the other contributors on the obesity side is increased inactivity. And that's also significant, uh, particularly for children. And, and in this neighborhood where we're locked down, but uh, there are places outside where children can play. I often hear just a burst of, of children screaming and yelling as they're released <laughs> to play outside. And that energy is capped because they're not in school. They don't have recess. They don't have their physical education programs. But the other interaction of obesity with food insecurity is that there's a, a, a literature that suggests that people who are food insecure are more likely to develop obesity. As now, it's not—it's a mixed literature, frankly, but I, one which I believe in because of a of a patient that I had um, years ago who was in a family that was food insecure, and her mother was worried that her daughter would go to bed hungry, so she was feeding her pasta with with butter every night. And when we were able to get her additional benefits and particularly increase her fruit and vegetable intake, this girl began to lose weight. But there is this interaction, obesity and, and food security or insecurity, which um, may be a contributor to obesity. So uh, on the, the food insecurity side, there's a contribution potentially to obesity, but also the effect of COVID-19 on undernutrition and increased susceptibility to COVID-19 as a result. Now, the climate change uh, is interesting. I, there's, I think that the environmental degradation piece is one of the contributing factors that has unleashed SARS-CoV-2, the, the virus which causes COVID-19. I'm not sure how, how COVID-19, so that COVID-19 basically contributed 
to the, the whole pandemic. And, and the positive side of COVID-19, if there is one, is that there was a clear reduction in car use and, as people were locked down and a significant change in, in CO2 uh, in, in the United States. But I'm not sure that, that aside from the environmental degradation and the release of SARS-CoV-2, that there's an additional effect of COVID-19 on climate change. Although there is a, a, an impact, the same impact of climate change on food insecurity that we, see, what we saw earlier in that slide in terms of the yields of food production and also the, the quality of the foods um, that are produced. So um, the systems that, the major system that contributes to um, these inequities is the agricultural system. And you're probably aware, I'm not sure whether this has happened in the UK, but uh, certainly in the United States, the, the industries uh, on food supply chain that were most immediately affected were the meat production facilities, uh, the, the processors of beef and, and poultry. And those are largely staffed, uh, 85% are people of color who live uh, in poor conditions. So there's a, a spread within the, the workforce they have poor nutrition, they're paid abysmal wages, and they lacked uh, personal protection equipment. And uh, there was uh, as many as, as 25% in some of these plants, these uh, food processing plants were affected. Uh, so that in turn contributes to, to food insecurity uh, within the workforce. So it's a, it's a cycle uh, that food insecurity contributing to their poor nutrition and therefore their increased susceptibility to the, the adverse effects of COVID-19. That has also disrupted the food chain. So there's a, a decrease in the workforce that's in the field, uh, in the processing plants, that the people that, the essential workers that move food from field to fork. These are all essential workers, but they're not paid as essential workers. They're, they're given low, uh, low wages, and that increases their, their susceptibility and, uh, to COVID, and it also disrupts the supply chain, which increases food costs, which in turn contribute to food insecurity as people have less money to buy food because of, of lost wages. But these are also driven by deeper drivers, like in the United States, immigration policy. So many workers are undocumented and are afraid to not show up for work because they're so dependent on the limited wages they're paid. They're not paid uh, a minimum wage at all. Um, this is also reinforced by structural racism, including our immigration policy. But uh, for other people along um, the workforce, this, the impact of, of structural racism on employment and on uh, access to jobs and access to, uh, to healthful food is a, a major problem. And finally, the priority of profit over health. Many of the companies, I shouldn't say many, there are only four companies, for example, that control the, the whole access to poultry, the whole uh, processing of poultry. So it's uh, almost, uh, in, well, it's, it's certainly inequitable and really a monopoly in, in many respects uh, because people have, who work in, uh, in the fields and who work in those plants have no other place to turn. And when they get sick, they lack medical coverage. So how do we begin to address this? Well, this is one of the fundamental problems in the United States, I think, is the whole underlying structural racism that maintains the system as it is. What about unionization to improve these worker conditions? I, I think that is a potential game changer, but people are reluctant to join a union because they're undocumented and risk uh, deportation. But the worker conditions are abysmal with respect to housing. People are uh, crowded together in like 12 people in a two-room house. They lack medical coverage. They're paid poor wages. They lack uh, personal uh, protection equipment. But unions um, could conceivably improve that. 
the whole vulnerability of the industrialized food system that we have in the United States, and I think also exists in the UK, means that we need to be thinking more about local and regional sub food systems that may be more resilient and, and more agile in terms of changing production and potentially have a more sustainable plant-based food system. So I think there's a real opportunity to explore that. But it really is poses some, some very significant questions. So that, for example, if one, has, if one pays minimum wage for workers in these plants, prices will rise, which will have the, the, the opposite effect that we'd like it to have in, in terms of consumption, particularly for low-income people. So unless those prices, the, the price increases are, are, or the minimum wage is also associated, uh, for example, with a redirection of subsidies so that fruit and vegetable production is increased and prices go down, we don't have a sustainable system. So this, this is a, a very much an, an interconnected system that changing one thing may not be, may, may have adverse effects on, on yet another. One of the areas that we'd like to pursue is modeling these systems uh, to begin to understand where the touch points are that um, could make the whole system more equitable, both in terms of the, the workforce and also in terms of the, the uh, people who are dependent on that workforce, largely low-income populations. So if we do these things, we may, we're going to improve the health of the food supply chain workforce uh, and decrease COVID-19 infections. That healthier diets will produce less diabetes, less obesity, decrease COVID-19 mortality, and reduce SARS-CoV-2 exposures through these uh, systems will, and improve nutrition will increase the resistance to infection. So it's, a, a, again, a triple duty solution for the global syndemic of obesity, undernutrition, and, and COVID-19. So thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to your questions and comments. And Stanley, thank you particularly for this invitation. And I'm going to stop sharing my screen. Thank you so much, Bill. Absolutely fantastic exposition of the complex set of relationships between undernutrition, overnutrition, climate change, and what can be done about it. I think you've offered an exemplify for how a nation could observe good global citizenship, you know, way beyond the United States and uh, possibly a, a different way in which the United States could lead. 